Hello again, this is Jim Bartlett. Welcome back to my podcast. It's a companion to my website. The hits just keep on coming. This episode is another one of those I warned you about when we started, one that has nothing to do with either music or radio. It's two separate stories that are at least plausibly related to one another. It's called The Fair and The Farm. If I ever wanted to be a farmer like my father, I don't remember it. The year I turned 17, I got a job in town and I never looked back. However, like many farm kids, I joined 4-H as soon as I was old enough. Nine, I think. I don't recall any discussion about it. My parents had been active in 4-H when they were kids. In fact, I have found from reading old newspapers that both of them were 4-H superstars, highly decorated with prestigious awards. So we kids had no choice in the matter. Not that we wanted one. In 4-H, you take on one or more projects that you're supposed to work on for the whole year in order to have them ready to exhibit at the county fair in the summer. For some 4-H kids, their projects were their passions. I liked 4-H well enough, but I didn't burn with interest in the projects I'd chosen. For me, they were just things I had to do. I had lots of different projects over the years. One year, I was the only boy to take part in the Greene County Foods Review, an event held on Saturday morning a few weeks before the fair. I was better in the kitchen than I was at a more stereotypical boy project like woodworking, and even then I believed that a man has got to know his limitations. So I made a dish and put together a tablescape, and it was me with maybe 40 or 50 girls. Yet even with those odds, I couldn't get a date. My main project was known as dairy. Because I was growing up on a dairy farm, it was a natural. The idea was that you'd care for a calf or a young cow as if it were a pet. You'd tame it, train it to be led calmly with a halter, groom it, and then show it at the fair. But my enthusiasm for the idea in the abstract was far greater than my dedication to the execution of it in reality. What actually happened was me putting off the whole process until a month before the fair, picking out a calf from the selection in Dad's herd, and hurriedly, half-acidly training it. Then I'd drag it into the show ring of the stock pavilion for several terrifying minutes before the skittish animal and I were put out of our misery with a pink fourth-place ribbon, the worst that we could do. The good thing was that the show was usually first thing Thursday morning. Once that was over, the fun of fair week began. You had until late Sunday afternoon to subsist entirely on hot dogs and Pepsi, hang out with your friends, and dodge your parents, who had other things they wanted you to do because there's always work on a farm in the summertime. In contrast to the hell of the show ring, this was glorious. It was like being on an exotic vacation. From around age 11 to age 15, next to Christmas, the county fair was the highlight of my year. We spent most of fair week in the cattle barns. They were open to the public so fairgoers could wander through and look at the animals. The different 4-H clubs would elaborately decorate their barn areas, and it was necessary for some 4-H kid to be on duty in the barn at all times. The theory was that people might have questions about the animals, and somebody should be there to answer them. The reality was that you were there to keep an eye out for animals doing what animals do and to immediately clean up after them. It's hard to reconcile how much fun it was hanging out in the barns with the likelihood that you would be carrying a forkful of manure to the pile outside when some cute city girl happened by. However, we 4-H kids were as much on display as the animals themselves, and I never minded getting attention, even a tiny bit of it. I'm pretty sure I even lounged on a hay bale with a piece of straw in my mouth, Huck Finn style. And I did get to spend a lot of time with my friend Brad, who was also in 4-H. In addition to showing 4-H animals, Brad's family also competed in the open-class cattle show. The family farmers who showed open-class were the real rock stars at the fair. They'd bring several animals from their herds to be judged each year. These families generally had enough children involved so that the labor of training, showing, and caring for the animals was divided. 
and they were fiercely competitive. The same families would duke it out for the blue ribbons and the grand champion trophies year after year. Because the animals represented a significant investment and could be worth thousands of dollars each, the families who owned them were not always content to leave them alone at night, watched only by the handful of cops who prowled the fairgrounds after closing time. So one or more herdsmen, family members or others, were often deputized to sleep in the barns. And to me, that seemed like a grand adventure. The year I was 15, I got to spend the night at the fair with Brad in the open-class barn. It was not quite like I had imagined, though. We did not have free run of the fairgrounds after closing, roaming a fantasy land denied to mere mortals. We were quite literally put to bed by the cops handling security. They made sure we were in our sleeping bags at midnight and that we stayed there. We were, however, permitted to keep the radio on all night, and that was only fitting because we also kept the radio on all day, blasting WLS or WCFL from Chicago or some other Top 40 station. In the daytime, you could walk from barn to barn and hear the music playing. Certain songs popular in late July of 1972, 73, 74, and 75 are indelibly stamped with memories of having heard them at the fair. Diamond Girl and Smoke on the Water, I Shot the Sheriff and Listened to What the Man Said. I quit 4-H the year I turned 16, but I still went to the fair that summer, and I even shoveled shit out of force of habit. But then I grew up, and I moved away, and I bet it was 20 years or more before I went back to the Greene County Fair. The first couple of years I went back, no longer a dairy farm kid but a citified grown-up, the fair was not at all like I remembered it. It seemed small and sad. But after our niece and nephew joined 4-H, it looked better through their eyes as they proudly showed off their projects. But there was still a bit of sadness in the experience. To walk through the exhibition hall and to look at the various photography, gardening, and woodworking projects was to remember my own attempts at such projects. I remember how, after the fair was over, my projects seemed like fallen leaves that had outlived their useful purpose. I wonder how many of the projects we see today will become junk in the back of a closet, and if their owners will talk about how it was just another thing I was into for a while while I was a kid. As we walk through the cattle barns today, we see 4-H and FFA kids, some undoubtedly the children or grandchildren of my own 4-H contemporaries, lounging in the hay beside their animals, secure in the feeling that this is where they will always want to be. But practically everything that seems eternal and unchanging when we're young is going to change. Farming was likely to break your heart 40 years ago and is many times more likely to do it now. Many of these kids, so deeply involved in agriculture, will pursue city careers after high school or college and never look back. Still, it's charming to see them today happy because of what they don't know about tomorrow. Certain things about the Greene County Fair really are eternal and unchanging, though. Even though the stock pavilion is no longer where kids such as I meet their moments of terror in the show ring, the faded signs on the outside still read the show window of southern Wisconsin. Kids still stay overnight in the barns. Certain food vendor stands have been in the same spots for as long as I can remember. On the midway, the biggest changes involve the fashions kids wear and the price of ride tickets. There's still a tractor pull, a demolition derby, cream puffs, the beer garden, and the ever-popular deep-fried cheese curds. Since 1857, through over 150 years of constant change, from the Industrial Revolution to the Digital Age, Greene County's rural folks have gathered every summer to celebrate who and what they are. It's an admirable purpose and a worthy occasion, and its worth is not affected one damn bit by city's liquor pretensions. If you go to the fair sometime, you'll still hear the occasional radio in the barns or see 4-H kids with earbuds in, because times change, but the music never ends. As I said at the beginning of this episode, being a farmer was never something I aspired to be. But the farm is a fine place to be from. 
even though we only live an hour away now, we don't visit all that often. We'll zip down to Mother and Dad's for an afternoon and zip right back, taking little time to linger. We stay over maybe three or four nights a year. In any season but the dead of winter, I will sometimes wander around outside the house, among the outbuildings, over the most familiar piece of ground I've ever known. Imagine that you're there with me on an early summer day and that you're going to wander along. We'll go out the front door of the house. Look a bit to your right, where the popple tree used to be. That's what we called it, a popple tree, although it was officially a quaking or trembling aspen. It's gone now, but it once stood at the corner of the dooryard. And almost everywhere you went around the farm buildings, you could see it. It framed the space over which it towered as if it were protecting the house in the crook of an arm. It shaded the dooryard and the driveway beyond. In the spring, it dribbled sap, so you had to be careful about parking your car beneath it. It hosted tire swings and sandboxes. Generations of cats, dogs, and kids played around it. The popple tree watched me come home from the hospital after I was born, just as it saw Dad come home from the hospital after he was born, home to the old house, the one that was torn down in 1956. By the way, no one now alive knows why Dad was born in a hospital. Hospital births were unusual in rural areas, especially during the Great Depression. My mother and her two siblings were all born at home. Dad is an only child, born five years after his parents' wedding, so we suspect they had trouble conceiving or staying pregnant. My sister-in-law once tried to get my grandmother to talk about it, but all she would say was, that's just how we decided to do it. But back to the popple tree. One night a few years ago, a storm buffeted our little corner of Clarno Township. It was no worse than other storms over numberless years, but on that night the wind hit the old girl a little too hard, a little too square, or just wrong. It had happened before, and when it did, it was always possible to shore her up, trim the damaged limbs, make her more comfortable, like you would an elderly patient with a terminal disease. But after that night, the tree's time had come. The tree removal guys discovered she was mostly hollow, so it wasn't possible to count the rings, but they estimated that she had stood in the same spot for 200 years. I like to think she provided shelter to the native people of Wisconsin before there was any such thing as Wisconsin, that she was standing while George Washington still lived or while Abraham Lincoln was a boy. Whatever I walked out of the house to do as a young man, go off to kindergarten, graduate high school, marry my wife, bury my best friend, and many, many things I have come home to do now that I'm old, they all happened in the watchful shadow of the popple tree. And on this day, as on every day I'm back home, I see her ghost where she used to stand, and I mourn her absence. But let's turn our backs on where the popple tree used to be and walk toward the southeast. A couple of scraggly peony bushes still bloom near the road bank, as they've done for as long as I can remember, although a direct TV antenna now sprouts incongruously between them. The asparagus patch is still there, too, gone to seed for the season now. Mother has been cutting asparagus there since the new house was built, before I was born. East of the dooryard was where Mother once had her garden, although it's been a smooth expanse of grass for many years. The apple and pear trees, the blackberry, raspberry, and currant bushes are all long gone. Several family pets were buried under the pear tree. Now certain pets, including my favorite dog from childhood and three cats Anne and I have owned in adulthood, are buried nearby, in the cow pasture or next to it. A few steps north of the old garden is the chicken house. No chickens have lived there for 50 years, although in more recent times it's been home to a couple of Shetland ponies belonging to my brother's in-laws. It's also where mother and dad used to park the riding lawnmower. North and west of the garden and beyond the chicken house is the cow pasture. One winter, snow melted and froze, and the pasture became a sheet of ice. For two or three glorious days, my brother and I could ride our sleds from the far back of the pasture all the way down the hill, a long and speedy ride with a little jump in the middle where an old fence used to cut across. 
The icy climb from the bottom to the top of the hill was so long and strenuous that we could make only three or four runs in the course of an afternoon. It was nearly 50 years ago, and we still talk about it. You and I are walking along the pasture fence now toward the old corn crib. Along the fence, rhubarb still grows, as it has for as long as I can remember. As we reach the corn crib, I remember how at harvest time, ear corn would be loaded from wagons onto an elevator that carried it up to the bin doors on the roof. In the evenings, we like to climb the elevator and sit up there, masters of the autumn landscape, at least until Mother spotted us and made us get down. But back here in the early summer present, we'll cut over past the cow yard and toward the barn now. The barn used to be such an inviting place, especially in the fall and winter, with its animal warmth, animal smells, and golden light from fly-speckled bulbs. But now the milking equipment is long dormant, and the space once filled by cows and calves and cats and dogs and kids and a vigorous young farmer's twice-daily milking routine is now strewn with discarded stuff that's too good for the landfill but not good enough to use anymore. Dad sold his cows in 1994. On my first visit home after they were gone, the sound of their absence was disorienting. One of the reasons I don't go in the barn much anymore is that it's so quiet. Too quiet for a place that once rang with so much sound, so well remembered. I gotta tell you, as we continue around the barn on the gravel driveway, something seems different about this place today. But I can't put my finger on it. So let's keep going. On the south side of the barn, we walk up an incline to reach the upper level, which we call the haymow. As boys, my brother and I spent uncountable hours in the haymow. When it was full in the fall and early in the winter, it was a high climb to the top of the stacks and an adventure to build forts and tunnels out of 50-pound bales of hay. As the hay was used and the haymow emptied, it became a wide-open play space late in the winter and in the spring. In any season, the haymow was where cats frequently had kittens, and it was a grand and joyful thing to find them. Next to the haymow entrance is a large tapering bin that was used to store ground cow feed. It frequently figured into our childhood imaginations since it has a ladder on the side and because it resembles a rocket ship. Let's walk to the west just a few steps. Now look up there toward the north. See the stand of willow trees a few hundred yards up? It is likely that there are still remnants of a treehouse there built nearly 50 years ago. In the early spring, snowmelt would drain from the fields above and down through the willows, and we would play in the stream, just as Dad did when he was a boy. In more recent times, right on this spot behind the barn, my maternal grandparents briefly maintained an enormous garden to scratch their farming itch for a few summers after they sold their cows and moved to town. It has finally occurred to me what is so different about this place as you and I walk it. It's the grass. Grass is growing in the driveways, peeking up through the gravel and dirt. Grass that never had a chance when this was a busy working farm can now take hold in places grass never did. The lane that runs to the willows and the fields beyond is completely overgrown. The neighbor renting the cropland has no reason to use it. If we wanted to walk down to the willows and search for that treehouse, we'd have to blaze a trail through hip-high weeds. Let's turn one more time so that we're walking east again. The long, grass-covered knoll by the side of the road was our football field. I'd go out there after the Packer game on Sunday and pretend to be Bart Starr. We played football there even after Mother insisted on putting a rock ring flower bed in the middle of it. The nearby machine shed was blown down in the Palm Sunday tornado of 1965 and rebuilt a year or two later. There's a home movie of my brother and I pushing our tricycle off the concrete foundation and hoisting it back up again with a rope over and over and over. Now we're back in the dooryard and in the shade of two tall trees. I remember a conversation I had with Dad right after they were planted 25 or 30 years ago. Those will be really nice someday, I said. Maybe, he responded, but I probably won't be around to see it. Sure you will, I said. 
The summer before you turn 100, I'll be 72. I'll wheel you out under those trees and we'll enjoy the day, or you can wheel me. The summer before my father's 100th birthday is a lot closer now than it was then, close enough to imagine in a way I could not when the trees were planted. The vigorous young farmer who made this place his own is now an elderly man who seems to grow ever more frail. I wish he could be that young man again. If I could give him some of whatever vigor I still possess, give him some of my years, I would. But he wouldn't take them, because that's not how it's supposed to be. The days come when we must pass what we have and what we are to a new generation to make of that legacy what they will until it's their time to pass it along. For this place and the current generation that is called at home, those days are here. My youngest brother, who bought the land from mother and dad years ago, farmed until he was nearly 50, until he got a job in town and decided to rent the land. He has a son in high school who will most likely not want to farm. And so once mother and dad are gone, this land, which has belonged to us since my grandfather bought it nearly 90 years ago, will probably pass out of the family for good. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll visit my website, The Hits Just Keep On Coming, which you can find by putting that phrase into your favorite search engine. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, I hope you will consider coming back for another episode of it. It's available on Google Play, TuneIn, and Stitcher. Follow my SoundCloud or subscribe to my website, and you'll be notified of new episodes. This is Jim Bartlett. Thanks for listening.